initially, it seems like Dharma practice is a very effortful uh, application of intention to apply some technique to achieve some sort of spiritual condition or state. Or at least that's what we often prepare to do when we undertake a retreat like this. But actually, when we're more successful at practice, when we have more understanding and the momentum of awareness is developed, there's more of a natural unfolding of skillful, wholesome conditions in the mind in a in an ongoing way. When practice is mature like that, it is as if we live a lifestyle of awareness. Whatever your lifestyle is, whether you live in the city or the country or you're young or you're more elderly, we have naturally, we have different lifestyles, we have different interests. And yet, there isn't anything that we do that your mind isn't there. And practice is learning how to bring skillful attitudes of mind, skillful qualities of mind to whatever it is we're doing. So when we consider that that's really the direction that Dharma practice has taken us, we should, as Saito Utejaniya says, consider meditation more of a marathon than a hundred yard dash. Like there's no quick fix. There's no magic bullet. It is a transformation of the way you approach life. The qualities of heart that are most responsible for this developing lifestyle of awareness are called the five spiritual faculties, the five controlling faculties. They're the five faculties or attributes of mind that are most responsible for guiding our practice towards skillful mental states. And these include sada, which is often translated as faith or confidence, virya, which is energy or in its actual application, its perseverance, sati, which is mindfulness or observing, which has the function of just remembering, Samadhi, which is often called concentration or collectedness of mind. But it is really the stability of the mind. And wisdom, or panya, which is skillful understanding that emerges through practice. And together, the activity of these five faculties, these five attributes of mind, allow us to live our life in an ongoing way with an energetic, willing, balanced, skillful understanding of conditions as they present themselves moment to moment. 
whether what we're experiencing is boring, challenging, ordinary, excited. We can approach it with a clear understanding of what's going on and respond from a place of that understanding skillfully rather than being caught in some deeply conditioned habitual pattern of reactivity, which we see is all too quick to arise. It's kind of like our default setting. And so practice is really a shifting, a transformation of our default setting from one of unskillful habitual reactivity to skillful responsivity. So tonight I want to speak about these five faculties because they are part and parcel of our practice. They are causal in that to the extent that we have faith, we'll make effort. To the extent that we make effort, we'll be more mindful. To the extent that we're more mindful, the mind will be more stable. To the extent that the mind is more stable, we'll see things in more detail with more understanding. That, in turn, inspires us again with more confidence and faith. And the process continues in a causal, sequential, cyclical development of all these factors of mind in a balanced way. So the first factor is sada, usually translated as faith confidence or having assurance in something. Faith or sada seeks the good, seeks what is good in oneself or seeks what is good in another. So when you have faith, when you have a natural or spontaneous faith, you, you see the goodness in others or you see the goodness in uh, a particular situation or you see the potential of goodness within yourself to develop. Earlier in the retreat, I told, or I mentioned that my first retreat was a two-week retreat that I went to thinking I was going to a resort and didn't know anyone who meditated, didn't know anything about Buddhism, had no interest in spirituality, but, well, found myself there. At the end of which, I was kind of stunned and 35 years later, here I am inviting you to do the same thing. <laughs> and what happened? You know, I, I, for a long time I wondered what, what happened at that retreat because it was not what I planned on. It wasn't that I learned anything. It wasn't that I accomplished something. But what happened is my faith was awoken. And what's surprising is that I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I didn't know anything about meditation. I didn't know anything about the path of practice. I didn't know anything about enlightenment, nibbana. I didn't know anything about anything in that field. <laughs> and yet, that didn't prevent faith in the practice from arising in my heart, in my mind. And that's really what I saw as the good that I got from the retreat 
It's like here is a practice, here is a method that, simple as it is, difficult as it is to do, it's something I could rely on. I could see that it was beneficial, even though I couldn't do it at that time. I could see that there was a potential there. And it wasn't that I had faith in the teachers. I mean, great teachers, still have them as teachers. It wasn't that I suddenly had some understanding of the Buddha or what being a Buddha was all about. Didn't have any of that. It was just that I had this very practical experience of sitting on a cushion just like that for two weeks and something happened. I could see that this practice of just paying attention to body and mind stuff over the course of time really brings some goodness to the heart, to the mind. And I had faith in that. I, I didn't have to believe it because somebody told it to me. I didn't have to read it in a book. I had my own experience. And that is what faith ultimately relies on is our own confirming experience. We can read in a book and be infused with hope and aspiration and you know, uh, just this extraordinary enthusiasm for teacher, teaching, or practice. But if we don't actually do it to confirm it from our own experience, that enthusiasm, that faith is very, very weak. Just not, not significant enough to support the journey of discovery that practice really is. So what happened? Well, I found something to put my faith in, the practice. And with that faith in practice, I knew what the journey involved. I knew the direction I was going. I had an aspiration. And I had confidence to move forward. And that's what faith does. It, it, it's as if it's a spiritual compass. It shows us the direction of our spiritual aspiration. And secondarily, it gives us some level of confidence to make the effort to realize it. Traditionally, it's said that people often take or find faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And maybe practice is really the Dharma, or maybe practice is really the Buddha. And I don't know anybody that can practice without a Sangha. So I guess I was taking faith in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha without even knowing what they were. In the igniting of confidence, sometimes we can be more enthusiastic and more inspired than grounded. And sometimes faith can be quite imbalanced. We can have a lot of faith in a teacher, even if they're, well, in the worst case, a charlatan. And it happens. You know, we, we don't have to read very far to find out, to, to recognize that there are abusive spiritual relationships. That 
people have great faith in teachers or teachings and, well, too much faith, not enough wisdom. And this is the, this is the defining characteristic of these five factors is that they only develop in, when you practice, in balance. Faith must be balanced with wisdom. Energy must be balanced with concentration. And the key to balancing these two pairs is mindfulness. And these are the five factors that I'm speaking about tonight. The challenge to faith and confidence is doubt. We doubt the teachings. We doubt, at times in practice, we'll doubt our teacher. We'll doubt ourselves. We'll doubt the efficacy of practice. We'll doubt the value of the goal of practice. In fact, we will doubt everything about practice at some point in our journey. And that's because we need to find out for ourselves whether what we hear, what we read, what we're told is true. And we can only know that from our own experience. And while that, those doubts may not be very strong or very enduring, we still at different times in our practice are going to feel some doubt. Doubt paralyzes our practice. If we don't see doubt when it arises in the mind, we'll stop practicing and just think about practice. Because doubt masquerades as logical reasoning. And so we get, you know, particularly for those who are well-read, who, who, who are real intellectual types or have read a lot of Dharma, they can be paralyzed. And this is a manifestation of excess knowledge, not in balance with faith. It takes faith to actually practice. You can, you can know everything that the Buddha ever said. But if you don't have faith, you won't practice and won't find out for yourself whether it's true or not. So this is another example of an imbalance in faith energy, I mean the faith wisdom pair of these five factors. However, the only way to proceed in the face of doubt is to recognize doubt and keep practicing. Even practicing doubting that you're doing it well, doubting that it works, doubting that it's a value, keep practicing. And if you do keep practicing, practice will answer all your questions about doubt. You cannot think your way out of doubt. You can borrow someone else's confidence. You can talk to a teacher. You can read a book. You can read the stories of monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha. And it can give you a lot of encouragement, a lot of inspiration to proceed momentarily in the face of your own doubt. But ultimately, we have to come to a confidence ourselves. And a large part of practice, or the first phase of practice, is uncovering or exposing the filaments of doubt in the mind and practicing through them. And when every filament of doubt has been exposed and uprooted, 
we will see unshakable confidence arise in the mind. After finishing my first two-week retreat, I mentioned that I returned to the commune where I lived. And while everything was the same, same people, same relationship, same behavior, same misbehavior, same activity, everything looked different. I just understood everything from such a different perspective that I just didn't fit in the way I had felt when I left. And even though I had a lot of faith in practice, it was a year and a half before I did anything about it. I didn't, didn't read a book, didn't sit once, didn't practice, didn't do anything for a year and a half, even though I felt inspired by the practice. And when I asked myself, well, why not? Of course, a genuine and a realistic answer is, well, the momentum of my lifestyle just didn't have room for it. But actually, there's a deeper, maybe even subtler, explanation. There was no cause for urgency in my mind. There's the practice. It's available when I need it. Why now? Well, there was no, there was no sense of urgency. And it is a sense of urgency is the proximate cause for the arising of energy, effort, which is the second of the five faculties. If we don't have any reason for doing it, we're not going to. And so you have to look at, you have to look at, even though you have faith in something, if there's no reason to, why bother? And that's the way it was for me. I didn't have any sense of urgency. There was nothing really calling me forth to practice. So you might even ask yourself, why did you come to this retreat? Why this retreat now? And we all have our own reasons. But somewhere in there, there was maybe some sense of, I got to get to this. This is, this is important for some reason. There's something urging us on to do it. And so we come and we make the effort and things proceed. After I'd been practicing for, for eight years, and I told you about the vision I had uh, doing a retreat where this shrouded wise woman appeared before me and, and, and said, the moment of your death is the most important moment of your life. Didn't let that go by unnoticed. <laughs> And it just precipitated this upwelling of, what am I doing here? What, what am I doing with my practice? I'd been doing retreats for eight years, and I was, you know, diligent but ineffective. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I had a lot of repair work to do, let's face it. <laughs> it just took a while. But at that point, something was gelling and it grabbed my attention, and it wouldn't let go. And I knew the value of practice, 
And I had to find out what the, I had to realize it for myself. And it was just clear that there was nothing going to stand in my way. And there was a sense of urgency. I have got to get into practice. And in my case, it was go to Burma and ordain. In your case, it can be totally different. But in my case, that was an acceptable way of acting on your urgency to, to discover the value of practice. And so that's when I made the decision to, well, I made the decision, yeah, right. Well, the decision was made by something in me that now's the time. We all have our own reasons for coming to practice, and they change. You know, what first brought you to practice may serve for the first retreat. And what keeps you in practice has to be something else. And after a year or two or three or four or every year, something else has to arise to, to keep your practice fresh, to, to remind you that there is an urgency. And traditionally, the causes of urgency or the source of urgency in um, the Buddhist understanding is called samvega, spiritual urgency, samvega. Traditionally, it is some apprehension of growing old, getting sick, and the potential, the probable, the inevitable, uh, death. And we live with these facts day in and day out. We see it all around us. It happens to us in its own way. And yet, somehow, it never really touches us until that time when we get it, like the Bodhisattva did when he left his father's palace, went out into the village, and he saw, meaning he understood the facts of life, beings, including myself, grow old. We all get sick, and we all pass away. When you really get it, everything else is not okay anymore. It's like that's that's commands your attention in a way that you got to do something about it. I mean, what do you do about it? Well, in the Bodhisattva's case, it was looking for a way to understand these facts of life and to come to some. Freedom from the suffering that they usually cause. And that was the motivation for his practice. Well, pretty noble aspiration. It doesn't have to be that great for us throughout our practice, but there are times when these facts of life, or other facts of life, just the the, the oppressive insecurity that we live with, it's like... As my, and we're living at the top of the heap. Here in the West, we've, we're, we got all you need. And it's a treadmill to keep it, but nevertheless, we do it. And no matter how much we acquire stuff, relationships, money, prestige, recognition, whatever, fame, glory, it, it, we're still insecure. Does that 
bother you? <laughs> Does that touch you in some way as being a little bit, well, crazy? Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, that's an urge. That's a, that's a reason for getting into practice and making sincere and continuous effort to discover what, how we can relate to the conditions of life in a way that doesn't cause us to suffer. And that was the, that was the Bodhisattva's whole momentum thrust in his practice. How do you live this life? How do you understand what's going on in this life and not suffer at all? But just a sense of urgency can be pretty oppressive, could be pretty depressive if we just get kind of bogged down by it. But along with a genuine sense of spiritual urgency comes a clarity and a confidence to pursue the path of practice. And this is called pasada, where there is an understanding that we can address this sense of urgency through practice and a confidence to do that. I mentioned that we should consider the path of practice more of a marathon than a hundred yard dash. If you can acquire something that you think is of value in a weekend, weekend retreat, you can lose it in the next two days. That's how, that's just a fact of life. You cannot acquire a the gold of life in an hour or two. It just takes an investment of, well, as Saito Upandita uh, acknowledged to Kamala when she went to, to practice, you know, if you want to purify your heart, you must be willing to invest everything. You must be willing to invest your life in that pursuit because that's what we're working with. We're working with our life. We're not working with some little part of it over here. We're not just getting a, my meditation degree. We're transforming our whole life, the mind, the heart. And one of the, um, the manifestation, I, I like reading, the manifestation of energy in, in uh, practice is called non-collapse. You know when you're practicing, you, you come in, you sit down, you're going along, you're going along, and you're, you're, you're paying attention, you're paying attention. Now this is a, this is a visual teaching, so you have, to, you have to watch. You're going along, you're going along, yes, you're going along, you're going along, and then you go. <laughs> Do you see that? You're going along, you're going along, and you're there. You've you got the energy, you're, you're confronting what's coming up, you're observing the present moment, and then something comes up and you go. <laughs> that is called collapse. And what happens is something arises in our experience that just feels impossible, can't deal with it, and we collapse. And that collapse of energy is the break in the thread of the continuity of awareness. And when the thread breaks, all sorts of unskillful things come rushing into the mind. 
And so the challenge for us is to sustain the interest, sustain the willingness, and to have the courage, the confidence, faith, to, to know that whatever it is we're being presented with in each moment, to acknowledge this is the way it is for now, we can do it. We can do it. We just have to remember that we can do it. There really isn't anything that we're presented in life that we can't face. If you look at the history of humankind, horrible things have happened to a lot of people. And we too. And we can endure it. We can bear with it. We can face it. We can learn from it. We can be aware of everything it puts us through. And thrive. Not just survive, but thrive. If we understand that this is possible. And that's where faith in practice, faith in yourself, faith in the teachings, whatever it is you need faith in, supports the understanding that you can meet this with non-collapsing energy. It isn't a macho, you know, grit your teeth, hunch your shoulders, clench your fist. It's not that at all. It's an openness. It's a soft, tender receptivity to what this actually feels like. And we can do it. The mind can, can open to anything and accept it. But we have to understand that it, this, is, this is the task, this is what we're being asked to do in this practice, is to acknowledge all of life, everything that life offers us, and to learn it, to learn from it. Raman Maharshi said, no one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. Sayadu Tejaniya seconds that opinion or that understanding when he says, it's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. And for this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. Not collapsing in the face of anything. So in understanding the need for faith that supports effort or energy and the non, of the non-collapsing kind, it really is the energy that is precise, poised, and persevering in addressing or confronting, acknowledging this present moment. It's not the future. It's not the past. Those occur in the present. When we think of the past, it is a present moment experience. When we think of the future, it is a present moment experience. Everything that we're asked to deal with, to be with, to acknowledge, is a present moment experience. When we understand that, we can practice with a more balanced, more reasonable, more poised energy. The third of the 
controlling faculties is mindfulness. Now we have the faith or the confidence to make the effort because we have a sense of urgency and we make this persevering but poised, balanced effort. And what is it we do with this effort, with this energy? We observe the present moment. What is going on? And rather than trying to answer the question, why is it going on, which can lead you into an endless explanation that takes your whole life to finish, (laughs) when you ask the question, what, you have an answer in every moment. What is this? Breathing in. What is this? Feeling sad. What is this? Disliking it. What is this? Boredom. What is this? And in every moment, there is a complete package, a recognition. That's it. There is a moment of awareness. But as we all know, while mindfulness is easy, as long as somebody's prompting you to be mindful, it's really hard to remember to be mindful. And that's the manifestation of mindfulness. It is to remember to acknowledge the present moment. If we remember, the rest of it's easy. But it's hard to remember. Because that isn't our habit, that isn't our training, that isn't, we're more, or have been, more interested in distraction, in you know, being lost in la-la land, or making plans for futures that never will happen, or revisiting past that will never come back again. So the function of mindfulness is to remember, to not forget. And what is it we're to remember? What is it we're not to forget? That the present moment is all there is. When I first started practicing with Sadhu Pandita, it was here. And he was upstairs in what is now room 200 doing interviews. Every day I had an interview with him at 2 o'clock. And it was a three-month retreat. Just 20 students. And uh, I was having a difficult time. <laughs> and I was really struggling. I was not such a, such a skillful yogi at that time. And uh, one day I was waiting in the hallway to, for my chance to go in. And the person who was interviewing just before me was uh, a young woman who was quite new to practice. But she was having fantastic practice. She was really just off the, off the wall. She was really doing, doing well, very confident. And I heard her exclaiming with this utter enthusiasm and delight. And just, you know, she was, in her practice, she was remembering her past lives and everything that was going on. And, uh, uh, and she was just, you know, inside I was listening and giving some comments. And I was in the hallway saying, oh my God, past lives. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I went and uh, do my bows. After she came out, I went in and did my bows. And then out of my utter frustration, I said, I kind of, blurted out to Sayadaw, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something? (laughs) And he looked at me really calmly and he said, no, remembering this life. Just remember to be here for this life. And that's all we're doing, moment to moment. Can we remember to be here? This is it. This moment is our life. The last moment is gone. It's It's not existing. The next moment hasn't come yet. It's this one. That's our challenge. What contributes to mindfulness? 
What is the proximate cause for mindfulness? What is it that if it exists, you're more likely to be mindful? It isn't the breath. It isn't a sound. We know we need energy, of course. But it said that if there is clear perception in one moment, the next moment you're more likely to be mindful. Now what is clear perception? Clear perception is the ability to recognize what you're observing. And for this we we suggest, we offer the technique of noting, naming your experience. Because for you to name your experience, to, to here you are, you're sitting, you're doing something, you're sitting. If you're not paying careful enough attention to be able to name your experience, you may not really perceive it. You may not really recognize it. You kind of feel like you're there, but you don't recognize it. So it's when we're able to clearly perceive what this moment's experience is, we'll be mindful, and the next moment we'll be mindful. And so we encourage you to really cultivate clear perception. Put some effort into clearly recognizing what it is you're experiencing. Not just an amorphous anything. Sometimes that's what you're clearly perceiving. Everything is fuzzy. Okay, that's a clear perception. Because that's what supports the continuity of mindfulness. It is so difficult with our very complicated minds to believe that just observing the present moment as it emerges is enough. Kamala mentioned the other night that, uh, I think it was Menindra said, if you want to do the practice, just sit down. If you just sit down and know you're sitting, everything else will happen. All of practice will unfold. That's too simple for us. You know, our minds are so complicated, need things to be so convoluted and so extensive that to do something that simple doesn't feel like doing enough. And so our minds have a tendency to just proliferate all kinds of agendas that attach themselves to our mindfulness practice. The agenda to fix what we see that we don't think is right, the agenda to explain why things are the way we see them, the agenda to avoid, well, unpleasant and certainly all the defilements, the agenda to achieve or accomplish what we've read is the goal or experiences of good practice, the agenda to uh, get enlightened. Some people have that. These agendas attach themselves to our effort, to our mindfulness, and they're impossible to fulfill. And so we practice frustratedly as long as we don't see that this agenda is accompanying our effort. Mindfulness is really just observing the present moment, clearly recognizing it, without doing anything about it. You don't have to do anything with it. You don't have to fix it, explain it, figure it out, get rid of it, develop it, enhance it. Nothing. You just have to see it. 
But that's so simple that very difficult to sustain. But mindfulness is not a matter of personal accomplishment. It's not like some of us can be mindful and some of us can't, like there's some inherent defect. We all have the same potential to be mindful if we practice, if we practice skillfully, if we use our best judgment and make a non-collapsing continuity of, of effort, if you put in the, if you fulfill the conditions, the result of mindfulness will happen. When the momentum of mindfulness, which means the continuity of mindfulness, develops, meaning moment by moment being mindful. Our teacher asks us to be uh, to recognize what is being known every second, once per second. You only got to do once per second. You don't have to notice five things per second, just one thing. You know, breathing in, breathing out, hearing, liking, disliking, aching, pain. You know, that's even more than once per second. That's a little fast. But that's all. You just have to recognize once per second. It's that continuity which collects the mind. When we talk about collectedness of mind, you know, when we sit down and try to watch the mind, we're thinking about the past, we're thinking about the future, we're feeling some sensations, we're imagining this, we're waiting for the bell to ring, you know, and there's, the mind is just so dispersed in so many directions, we don't see anything very clearly. It's just like a huge whirlwind in the mind, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it is in my mind sometimes. It's like it's just a whirlwind of stuff just kind of so much going on. If we just steady our attention and just notice what we can, moment after moment, it all settles down into a pretty clear unfolding in a chain of uh, experiences or in a sequential line of experiences. We collect the mind from all these places. We collect it from the past. We collect it from the future. We collect it from la-la land. And we bring it to here. Now, we put the, all the energy of the mind right here reining it in from its proliferating distractions. And when we rein in the mind, when we bring all the power of the mind to the present moment, we feel calm. We feel stable. We feel at peace, at ease, really. Comfortable in the body, comfortable in the mind. We don't feel so scattered. We don't feel so spun out. We don't feel so distracted. And this, of course, is what we're all looking for. You know, when we come to practice, like, give me some, give me a rest. Let me have some tranquility, a little bit of peace, a little bit of calmness, something. And it is samadhi, or the collectedness of the mind, that most of us recognize first as good practice. When we when we manage accidentally to get a little samadhi together, when we feel it, we say, oh, this is it. This is, this is what I want. This is, this is good. And it is good because it indicates that there is this continuity of awareness where we're pulling in the, the mind from all of its distractions. When the mind is collected, it doesn't wander. 
collected mind overcomes restlessness. Restlessness is the wandering mind, the mind that just wanders here, there, wherever it wants to. And when we collect the mind, it's as if we corral the mind, we rein it in, hold it, hold it onto the present moment. And it, it kind of melds together all of the factors of the mind so that they all land on the same object at one time. And when the mind is like that, it's like the mind is very cohesive. It all sticks together. It all goes together to the moment's experience, the present moment's object. And the mind makes sense out of what seemingly initially might appear to be very disparate experiences. You know, the mind is all over the place, the body is all over the place, whatever. And yet, the concentrated mind sees things as if it's unified. I noticed, I didn't know this what I was, I didn't know why I was noticing, but I would notice that in my early years, when I would do walking meditation out here in the upper walking room, out where the Kuan Yin is, you know, the pattern of the wood grain in the floor is totally random. I mean, the grain, the wood, I mean, it's like, hello, there's no, there's no master plan to that, <laughs> except when you get really concentrated and collected, your mind will see it as a unified pattern. The mind, the collected mind, sees things as a unit. It's when everything comes together into a cohesive whole. We've mentioned uh, Deepama, the, the uh, Bengali woman that was such an extraordinary yogi, uh, both in concentration and in insight uh, from India one of our teachers or years ago. And she had an extraordinarily, powerfully concentrated mind. And you know the um, Rorschach test? The Rorschach test is the inkblot test. You know, the inkblot test is you get 10 inkblots. And the first one is, you know, a butterfly. <laughs> or that's what it looks like. It's just a very simple black splotch. And, you know, what you're asked to do is to tell the tester what it is that you see in this inkblot. Of course, it's an inkblot. It's nothing but an inkblot. And yet, somehow, images emerge from your mind to get projected onto this inkblot, and you say, well, I see a this here and a that there, and they ask you where you see it. And the inkblots get more complex as you go along. The first one's pretty simple, the next one's a little more complex, and by the time you get to the tenth card, the inkblot, man, it's a kaleidoscope of colors and shapes, and it's just like, wow, it's really out there. Well, a friend of ours, Jack Engler, offered a battery of Western psychological tests to Deepama, among others. And when other independent psychologists reviewed what she had said about her Rorschach test, or during her Rorschach test, they realized that they'd never seen anyone else ever do what she did with the Rorschach test. No history, no record of anyone ever doing what she did. What she did was she wove a story out of every image she saw in all ten cards into the story of the Buddhist teaching. Now, if you've ever done a Rorschach test, you know how hard that would be. I mean, and yet that was the power of her collected mind. Her collected mind was so 
together that she didn't see many things. She saw one thing, the story of the Buddha's teachings. And there it was in the ten cards. Okay. The mind has infinite, infinite capacity. And the Buddha said there's no limit to how collected, concentrated, the mind can become. There's no limit. None. Even what Deepama did is not the limit of the human mind. And so there's just, of course, there's going to be always the glass is going to look half empty. You know, no matter how concentrated you get. But when we're able to sustain the awareness moment by moment and the mind gets collected, we're looking at these moment-to-moment experiences in the body and the mind. And it's as if we're looking at our experience through a powerful microscope. We see things in detail that is invisible to the naked eye or that is invisible to the scattered mind. We're looking at the same experiences of life, physical, mental, emotional stuff. And yet, because of the quality of the mind, we see it very differently than from our ordinary, everyday life perspective. And when we see it with this degree of discernment and refinement and subtlety, we understand things profoundly. And this is the development of the fifth factor, the factor of wisdom, of of skillful understanding. We see into the roots of experience in a way that, you know, in our everyday life, in our busyness and scattered mind, we just don't see. It's not that it's not there. It's there. But the power of the mind is too weak to see it. Deborah was talking about the the other night, you know, in grade school somewhere, having to kind of look at the slides of earthworms or segments or pieces of earthworm under microscope. And once you, I mean, you know, the squeamy, squiggly, whatever earthworm, you put it on a slide and you stick it under a microscope, you don't see any earthworm. But you see the details of earthworm structure and you know more about it than you could ever gather from looking at it with the naked eye. And the same occurs with the concentrated mind. You see things that you, well, can't know otherwise about the nature of your life, about the nature of the body, about the nature of the mind, about the nature of the functioning of the mind, about how it is that we suffer and how it is that we come to the end of suffering. And that's why it's so important to sustain the continuity of awareness, to collect the mind in order to see in this way. The fifth factor is the factor of panya, or wisdom. It's the key to true happiness. True happiness. We can go do a weekend retreat and get high and get bubbly and get inspired and get happy and leave after a week or ten days or two weeks and just be flying. But it doesn't last. It's, it's kind of 
insubstantial. It doesn't really transform anything. But when we collect the mind and we look at our own situation, the own, our own experiences in life, and we understand from within them how it is that we suffer with this experience and how it is to come to the end of suffering, that experience, that understanding doesn't go away. You come out of that experience, you go home from the retreat, you go home, you get up from your sitting, whatever, wherever it occurs, that understanding is still there. I asked uh, one, of, one of the groups that I was uh, seeing the other day, I said, did you ever eat a Chico? You know what a Chico is? No, nobody knew. But for those of you who don't know, well, it's you know, about the size of a kiwi. It's got brown uh, skin on it. And uh, inside, uh, there's this uh, cinnamon-colored uh, aromatic kind of uh, flesh. Now you know what I mean? No. It, well, it's got five, four, three or four seeds, maybe five seeds, black seeds, about the size of an almond, shiny. And when you cut it open, it's kind of a star-shaped seed pod. Now you know what I mean? No. Well, when you taste it, it is like ambrosia. It is like cinnamony, sweet. It's just like so delectable. Now you know what I mean? No. <laughs> you won't know until you taste it, right? You know, you, I could give you an apple if you'd never had an apple and tell you this is a Chico and you wouldn't know whether it was true or not. <laughs> right? Okay. So I'm telling you, there is, <laughs> there is this knowledge about the nature of the mind and the body that's available to you with the collected mind and through the insight, through the development of insight. It is liberating and it will leave you with true happiness. It's yours for the tasting. You can have it. It's available. It's possible. It's not even tropical, <laughs> like Chico's. And when we hear this, we say, now, what is it? What is it, can, what is it that you can find with the collected mind? What understanding are you going to get? I could write it out and show it to you, but you wouldn't get it. Just like that Chico. I can describe it to you, but you can't get it until you actually taste it yourself. And when you taste it for yourself, nobody can take that knowledge away from you, ever. Right? Once you know the taste of a Chico, who can tell you that a grapefruit is really a Chico? Nobody. You'll know for yourself. And the same with liberation and happiness. Once you've tasted it for yourself, you know this is it. This is the end of suffering. This is true happiness. And that knowledge, that skillful understanding is available to us if we practice. That's why we encourage you to really have the attitude of this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Not retreat by any means. We're not going to live a retreat lifestyle. But if we live a lifestyle of awareness where we have faith, where we make effort, where we are observant, where we collect the mind and live calmly, we will see to the depth of our bodies and minds how to understand 
this thing called the human life. How to live a human life with awareness and be free of suffering. It is possible. And that's what we're doing here. Cultivating these five factors of mind, primarily through mindful awareness, supported by faith, non-collapsing energy, to collect the mind and to see things in the level of detail that will show us how to understand everything. When we understand that this is the path of practice, when we understand that this is the the way that liberating understanding arises in the mind, we can see there's no magic bullet. You're not going to read it in the book. Nobody, no teacher is going to be able to offer it to you with some whack on the shoulders or tap on the head. It's something that we earn through our own observation. We earn this understanding through our own efforts. And once we acquire it, no one can take it away. This is what we're doing here. Laying the foundation for freeing the mind, freeing the heart. To the extent that we practice, it will happen. We don't need to celebrate. We don't need to be frustrated. We just have to not collapse. So let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. Saido Tejaniya reminds us, it's not you who removes the causes of suffering from your heart. Wisdom does the job. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.